It is great to see everybody today coming to a nice little section in Acts chapter 2. Uh, you might have thought I was going to do the whole second point, but no, I'm just going to focus in on these verses because they're amazing. Uh, just going to deal with three today. And very thankful, probably could preach ten sermons on these three verses. That's how uh, amazing this section of Scripture is. So, in your Bibles, we're in Acts chapter 2. Today we continue Peter's sermon uh, with the heart of his message. Uh, the main point of the sermon, the main focus of the sermon. The focus is on the person and work of Jesus. Uh, Jesus' person and work is the reason that the Spirit has been poured out onto the disciples. So Peter gives a summary explanation of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. This is a perfect message for all of us as we contemplate this time of the year with the celebration of the incarnation of Jesus at Christmas. To think about what Christ or who Christ is and what he accomplished. Remember last week we saw Peter was speaking to those who had gathered because of the great display of God's glory at Pentecost, right? They came, they heard, they saw these men speaking in uh, other languages, their language from where they were at, and said, what's this all about? And Peter begins to explain in a great sermon what is unfolding. We saw Peter's sermon broke down into three main sections. First, we saw Peter explain the miraculous events of Pentecost as the beginning of a new time, that is, the last days, which were prophesied by the prophet Joel. We saw Peter quoted from the Old Testament prophet in Joel saying this, that is, what you are seeing, or what you're seeing with these men speaking in tongues, this is that which Joel had prophesied to come. Remember we saw that Peter quoted from Joel and it was taken from a larger section in Joel. When you go back over to Joel and look, you see that it was actually a prophecy section that covered almost all of chapter 2 and most of chapter 3. So this whole section, Peter takes and grabs a chunk out of it. Just a middle section of it. And when we looked over at Joel 2 and 3, we saw there were three prophecies that Joel made in that gigantic section. We saw a near prophecy of a blessing of Israel upon their repentance. The locusts would go away, remember? And then there was a second section that was a large section, and that's the section that Peter quotes from, the second section. It's a second section that promised to start at Pentecost, or that the Spirit would be poured out on people and they would begin to do miraculous events. And then there was a third section that was tied in Joel chapter 3. And I do want to make a point real quick here. A couple of you uh, said, are you saying that Joel 3 and 2 were not in the original manuscripts? No, 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 no. You missed what I meant by that. Don't, no, no, no. Uh, Joel 2 and 3 were in the original manuscripts. The little numbers is what I was talking about. You know, like verse numbers and chapter numbers? Those things. Those aren't in the original manuscript. Do you understand? So in other words, when you have a prophecy and it's listed in Joel chapter 2 and 3, it was all one letter, one document, and it didn't have those numbers. So there weren't breaks. Does that make sense? Okay, 
So he quotes, Peter quotes from a section right in the middle of this large prophecy. And then the third section we talked about in Joel chapter 3 was talking about Israel. And them actually getting land. It's brought up again. Land of all things. And they would get this land is what it says. So obviously this is talking about a future coming for Israel. The middle section is talking about now in the last days. But that third section in Joel chapter 3 points to a future to come. As we've seen many times in prophecy, Old Testament prophecies often cover a large period of time between one fulfillment and another. This is very true in Joel chapter 2 and 3. For example, prophecies of Jesus' first coming are often associated right next to prophecies of his second coming. So that you're reading in the Old Testament, and you're looking, you're saying, man, this looks like, okay, prophecy, Jesus' first coming. Oh, yeah, this is a first coming. And then you see something like, you know, the lamb lying down next to the lion, and you see playing by cobras, and what? That's not happened now, has it? Okay, so that's far off, but they're right next to each other. You're saying, wait a second. Why is it that way? Well, that's how prophecy is. That's how he did. Often the prophets would look out and span thousands of years and they would pick out points. And that's what God would show. And he'd show portions. And there'd be gaps. And that's what we have in this. So Peter pulls out a section right in the middle of Joel and says, that's now. And doesn't say anything about Joel chapter 3. That's what we have in his sermon. So Peter's sermon highlighted two characteristics of the last days. One was the miraculous events that obviously took place at Pentecost. The second aspect was a heavenly judgment. And we see this in verses 19 and 20. We ended with this. He's still talking about Joel chapter 2. He's drawing. Peter is. And he says, I will grant wonders in the sky above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come now this is talking about judgment during the last days if you look at it there's obvious things like fire vapor of smoke the sun being turned to darkness these are things that are judgment language from prophetic words. This is characteristic of the last days. Now let me ask you a question. Were, there, were these things happening at Pentecost? No, they weren't. But again, Peter is talking about this whole period of the last days. It's a giant period, okay? When he says this is that, he's saying that the last days have started and some of the events, like the speaking in tongues and those events, are at the beginning, but this is at the end of the last days. Now, Peter doesn't know how long the last days are going to take, and God doesn't want to reveal how long the last days are going to take. So he leaves it up to, you know, hey, the imminent return of Christ could happen at any time, and that's how the people are supposed to think. Does everybody understand what I'm saying here? So when he talks about judgment, this is at the end. Now this, I believe, is pointing to the supernatural events of judgment that will be characterized 
at the end of the last days. Those things, the sun being turned to darkness and the moon into blood. By the way, do I think they're literal? I think they are to a degree. Obviously, he doesn't, the moon doesn't become blood, but it does become probably red, okay? And the sun does become dark, and that has happened, hasn't it? Okay, so I think these are wonders, and they are indications of the end time before the Lord returns. Now, as I mentioned last time, Peter and the rest of the church were not revealed when the Lord's return would be. Instead, they were supposed to be ready all the time and to be ready to call upon the name of the Lord. That's what his emphasis was, right? In verse 21, call upon the name of the Lord in light of the fact that we live in the last days. Call out to him. So if you look at Acts chapter 2's passage, you might think, well, does this mean that the gifts mentioned in the first part are still around today? We might say, are the gifts of tongues still around today? Now, I know some of you, I used big words last time, and I'm sorry for that. I'll take those away, or I'll define them better. Cessationism. That's a big word, cessationism. What's that mean? That means, a cessationist means that we believe that the sign gifts have ceased. That's what a cessationist, this is simplified. Continuationist is somebody that believes that the sign gifts continue on. Okay? So does everybody understand those words and definitions? wanted y'all to have those. So a continuationist argues from Acts chapter 2, the gifts of tongues are still around because after all, Peter said, this is that. Right? And the last days are here. But I would argue that that does not prove anything from Acts chapter 2. It does not prove that the gifts are still around. I would say no, based on the fact that the events of the end of the last days have not been around for the entire time. You can't make that argument from Acts chapter 2. Now, you might want to go over to 1 Corinthians 14 and argue with me some other time. But right now, in Acts chapter 2, you cannot use Acts chapter 2 as a proof that the gifts are still around. Does everybody understand? Because if you do that, then you have to say you're arguing from silence. Because the fact of the matter is, is that the sun doesn't keep getting darked, darkened. Now, it goes down. It's still shining. Do you understand? The sun is not getting dark from Pentecost until now. Do you understand? And there's not fire and vapor all the time. I'm not seeing any, are you? Now, we light fires, but it's not from heaven. And they're not acts of judgment. Would you not agree? Okay, so that's not continuing. Everybody agrees, right? So you can't argue from Acts chapter 2 that this is a proof that it continues. You can argue from 1 Corinthians 14, and we can talk about that some other time. So, the primary point, though, that G Peter is making is not that. And I would argue that this is more important. Listen to me closely. The point is, be ready. We're in the last days. Christ could come. Call upon the name of the Lord. That's the point. You get it? This is so important. I think we so often get off on these arguments and try to figure out all these things. Let's get back to the gospel. What do you say? Okay, so that's what we're going to do today. Because that's what Peter does. 
If judgment were to start now, would you be ready for God's judgment? That's the question you need to ask. If God were to pour out His judgment now, would you be ready to face Him? Would you face Him based on Jesus taking your judgment, or would you be facing Him because you have not truly repented and trusted in Christ, and therefore you're going to face the judgment of God? That's the question. Why have the last days began? Why have they? Well, that's what Peter begins to unfold. Why has the Spirit been poured out? Why have the last days began? Why is judgment sure to happen? Why could it happen at any time? Why are all people everywhere call, called to call upon the name of the Lord? Why should we call on Him? That's what Peter begins to tell us today in our passage. This is what he says. He says, in effect, because of the gospel. Jesus has done it. Jesus has won, so be ready, because we are in the last days. Christ accomplished it, we're in the last days. Be ready. That's what he starts to say to the men. So the second point of the sermon is the gospel. Very clear, the gospel. You could argue that this is one of the finest summaries of the gospel in the entire Bible. In verses 22 to 24, we see a beautiful picture of the gospel. Let's read it again. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Whew. Glorious truth. Man, there's some. You want some scripture to memorize with your children? There it is, right there. Those are, those are four beautiful verses, or three beautiful verses. So, some of you might be wondering why I slowed down so much. I think this is, be, is because of just the glory revealed in these verses. I believe this is the heart of the entire Bible right here. This is a summary of all the Bible. It is the glorious good news, the truth of who God is, what God has done. It is Christ and His work. This is the point of Christmas. This is the point of the Passion Week. This is the point of the Lord's Supper. This is the point, this is the point of Christianity right there. These verses. These are verses we need to know what they mean, don't we? We need to understand the depth. And I, it is my goal the rest of my life is to plumb to know the depth of what these verses mean. I want to dig in and I want to understand the fullness of these verses. Today we're going to see five features of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. These features make Him worthy of all of our worship. These features make Him worthy of our obedience. Let's look at His features. Y'all ready to see Jesus a little bit more today? Let's look at Him. First, Jesus is why the Spirit has come. I mentioned this, the first point that Peter's making here was already stated Peter explains Jesus' incarnation and work is why the Spirit has been poured out. Peter 
is saying, in effect, if Jesus would not have done what he did, the Spirit would not be here. The reason why the Spirit is here is because Jesus has accomplished what no one else could do. He said, he changes in his sermon from what you see happening, you see all those miracles happening, to why it is happening <laughs> right here. Why is it happening? In, two, in chapter 2, verse 32 and 33 is his punchline. He says this, Jesus, this Jesus, God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Why do we know the Spirit's here? Why, do we, why is He indwelling us? Why? Because of what Jesus did. And that's his point. The implications are overwhelming for us. They are the reasons why we worship. Jesus has done, necess done what is necessary for us to have relationship with God again. Jesus has done what is necessary for us to be indwelt by God himself. Jesus has done what is necessary to make it possible for us to become holy, to live different than this world. Why is that even possible? Answer, Jesus. What Jesus did, that's why I can be who I am in Christ. Jesus has done what is necessary for us to have hope despite our previous depraved state. Jesus has done the work necessary to free us from the bondage of sin and the penalty of sin. So what do we all do? Worship. Isn't he great? Let's worship Christ. It's about him. That's what Peter's saying. Jesus did it. Worship him. Second, Jesus is identified as a Nazarene. This is some controversy. When Jesus spoke to his listeners, it would have been controversial to them. Nazareth was not a place of great honor and respect by other is people in Israel. Nathaniel stated when Philip announced to him that Jesus was the Messiah and that Jesus was from Nazareth, you know what he said? He said this, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? The area was not known as a hotbed of righteousness, <laughs> but out of wickedness, there arose a man, a God-man, a Nazarene who was perfect. That is Jesus. Isn't that the way God is? Think about this for a second. This is just typical of the way God is. He takes a fallen, sinful, ugly humanity and he says, look, here I am. God comes and there is a man that arises from a wicked place. It's perfect. Jesus was actually not born in Nazareth. Instead of being called Jesus of Bethlehem, he was called Jesus of Nazareth because this was the hometown he had grown up in. You know, this is somewhat like my second born, Caleb. He was born in California, but only after two weeks we moved to Florida. So Caleb would be considered more of a Floridian than a Californian, even though his older brother tries to talk him into being a Californian. California Golden Bear. 
he's known for being a Floridian more than he is a Californian. Jesus was known for being more from Nazareth than he was from Bethlehem. But being from Bethlehem was pretty important, wasn't it? In light of the fact that the line of David would come from there. And in God's perfect providence, he had him there. Jesus was the same way. In some ways, his birthplace was kept a secret until later. Jesus, third, was, uh, was not identified by his earthly father like most people of his day. You know, when it says Jesus the Nazarene, you think, well, that's no big deal. Well, it is a big deal. Most people were named after their father. It would be, must, it would be more like this. Jesus, the son of Joseph, is how he would often be referred to. But Jesus was never referred to that way. Why? Why? Because his father wasn't Joseph. His father was God. And they did the very unnatural thing of being named more by your city than by your dad with Jesus. All of these, every little word in this section is like loaded with glorious truth about our Savior. That's why it's saying we're just beginning to plumb the depths of this passage. And the irony was, Jesus' hometown was where? Heaven. He came from God. Jesus took the name Jesus of Nazareth, pointing to his ministry of condescension, that he would step down from heaven. He took the lowly title to save a people for himself. He took the humble way and became a man to demonstrate his great love and save a people for himself. Oh, folks, do you understand that he's named a Nazarene is staggering? God being named a Nazarene. Why? To save a people for himself. He was named the one from wicked Nazareth to save wicked sinners like me and you. Oh, this is good, isn't it? Do we all truly realize the depth of the sacrifice and love of our Savior that he demonstrated in the Incarnation? I'm completely convinced we forget these things when we get all self-centered, don't we? We forget how much he humbled himself to the, for us. Did he not? Oh, folks, the God of the universe came to earth and revealed himself as a man. This is humility. This is service. This is love. This is our Lord. Call upon him. One thing is very clear of all other religions. God is presented as unapproachable. You know, all other religions say you can't get to God. There's no way. You just have to hope. And you've got to work. You've got to pursue. And do everything you can. I had an opportunity to speak with a Roman Catholic this week. I hope he's watching. He suggested a book for me to read. Sweet, uh, uh, Home or Rome, sweet home. Rome, sweet home. Don't read it. I'm sorry. If you do, be very discerning. Um, it became clear to me as I read the book, one thing was clear. Getting right with God came by achieving some goodness in ourselves to earn God's favor. Approaching God came by doing good works. 
But when we delve into the impossibility that the Roman Catholic really says, we see that God is totally unapproachable. That's why they have to invent purgatory. You've got to go to purgatory and burn it off for a while. Stand in purgatory and burn for a while. Then you might be good enough for God, to, for you to approach God. What's wrong with this? It's about you achieving something. That's not going to happen. Listen, you can't approach God. That is correct. You can't get there. But the glorious good news of the gospel is He came to us. He came to us. He did what we couldn't do. Jesus the Nazarene. We're incapable, but He is capable. God's standard is impossible to achieve. Would you not agree? So God did it. He came to us because we're not, we wouldn't come to Him. And when we say we pursue God, and we try to do good works to get to God, we're actually not going to the right God. Do you hear me? That is not the right God. The only way to be right with God is if God makes you right with Him. How about that? That's a scary thought, but that's the truth. God became a man because we could not be like God. God approached us, and now because Jesus came, we are identified with that Nazarene. Now God can approach us, and that's the point of His sermon here. Back to the point of the sermon. Why is the Spirit now indwelling believers? Why? Because God came down and made a way so that God can come and indwell His people. Glorious truth, isn't it? All of that is from that passage. And we've only got the first point. <laughs> wow, isn't this good? <sighs> Do you understand? All access, all access to God comes ultimately because God approached us in Jesus. And now He approaches us through the Spirit. Listen, the only reason why you become a believer is because the Spirit of God approaches you, changes your heart, and then you believe. It's only because He calls you in your heart. That's why you believe. Do you know if you are a believer, you should all be saying, God, you are good? Not only did you approach us at the incarnation, but you approach us in the Spirit. Praise the Lamb. This is good, isn't it? And I'm on fire. Spirit, you are good. Mm. The Word is good, isn't it? Again, the Spirit's indwelling presence is possible only because Jesus became a Nazarene. Notice that third. Jesus was revealed supernaturally to his people. Wow. It says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested you to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which, you, which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know. Man, do you see what's repeated here? It's, it's, it's wild. Man attested to you 
right? God performed through him in your midst, just as you, yourself, know. These men knew the miracles. Listen, when Jesus showed up on the scene, it wasn't just a few little token miracles. Do you understand that? He pretty much eradicated disease in Israel. Do you understand demons? People that were demon-possessed, thousands of demons left the area. Said, that's it. We're out of here. Listen, this man attested to you. Literally, this idea of attested means shows forth the quality of the entity. That shows forth the quality of Christ. The form of this word in the original language points to the permanence of this demonstration or witness. In other words, it's attested and it stands attested. Jesus came and did these things and those miracles stand as fact. Contrary to the uh, faith healers today, Benny Hinn's miracles are shown to be a fraud. Jesus' miracles stand attested to, ladies and gentlemen. He is the God-man. He did great miracles. Miracles are, that are not done like today. I'm sorry, they're not. Listen, Jesus Christ turned water into wine, healed the royal official's son, healed possessed, a man possessed by demons in Capernaum, healed Peter's mother-in-law, produced a great catch of fish. Man, I wish that one was still around. Healed a leopard. Healed a centurion's servant. Healed a paralyzed man. Healed a withered hand. Raised a widow's son from the dead. Calmed the storm he sees. Healed a garrison demon-possessed man. Healed a woman with internal bleeding. Raised from the dead Jairus' daughter. Healed two men, blind men. Healed a mute man possessed by a demon. Healed a man crippled for 38 years. Fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Walked on water. Healed many. Healed a demon-possessed girl. Healed a deaf man. Fed 4,000 men and their families. Healed a blind man in Bethsaida. Healed a man born blind. Healed a boy possessed by a demon. I'm reading them all. Had Peter catch a great a, a, a fish with a coin in it. That's amazing. Healed a blind man possessed by a demon. Another one healed a woman with 18-year-old illness. Healed a man with dropsy. Healed 10 lepers at one time. Raised Lazarus from the dead. Healed Bartimaeus of his blindness, withered a fig tree, immediately said, you're dead, and it died. Restored an ear, cut off of Peter, immediately. That is Jesus. And those miracles stand attested to. He's different, ain't he? Let's worship the king. He approached us. By the way, the last one. They caught 153 fish after his resurrection too. But I think probably another miracle when they showed up on land 
he already had it all fixed and everything was made and cooked. Fairly sure he didn't sit there and let me put together a little bit of coal. Now I know that's arguing from silence, but it was just automatically there. And then the resurrection. Bodily resurrection. Look here, Thomas. Put your hands in the holes. Put your hands in his side. There are many places where not the, the exact number of healings aren't even mentioned. Just numerous people were healed. Not to mention the countless times he read people's hearts. I love this one. I think I'm going to do it on uh, Christmas Eve. I won't tell you the full details, but Jacob's ladder is found in John, in John's gospel. We'll talk about that coming up on Christmas Eve. The miracles Jesus did were overwhelming confirmations of his identity to the people of Israel. And they knew it, didn't they? They knew it. They were there. This would be like, you know, the size of just the central Florida, just from Lakeland to Tampa, just a small area. All these miracles are happening in that area. You think you'd hear about it? Even without newspaper? Yes. You'd hear about it. And they knew. They knew who he was. Listen, beloved, Jesus was not just another man. The people Peter was talking about knew it. God knew it. Everybody knows it. And you know it, don't you? God performed these miracles through him in their midst. So how should we respond to him? Answer? Call upon him. You got problems? Call upon him. You got a sin problem? Call upon him. You got a work problem? Call upon him. Call upon the name of the Lord. That's the point, isn't it? Jesus is worthy of our affection and our obedience. Correct? Fourth, Jesus was ruthlessly killed. Y'all having fun yet? I am. Really, really enjoying this. Oh, I didn't get to read that. You get this. You can write those down for later. John 10, 25, and 10, 37. See how they fit. Fourth, Jesus was ruthlessly killed because of God and man. Oh, now, when you see that, you go, oh, what? What? That's, that's hard to hear. Well, it does say, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. This man, literally, this one, the one who did countless miracles revealing his identity, the perfect one, this man, was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Again, this is shocking if we stop to really contemplate what it's saying. The question that is often asked by the skeptic of God is what? Why do bad things happen to good people? Correct? Y'all have all heard this question before? Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, ladies and gentlemen... We as believers know that this question itself has a critical flaw, doesn't it? What's the critical flaw? 
There are no good people. Period. We are all born dead, depraved, lost sinners. Everybody got that? So the answer to the question is, we should be asking instead, why do good things happen to bad people? You understand? That's the answer back to the people. When they ask, why do bad things happen to good people? We should answer them back. Wait, 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 wait. You should be saying, why do good things happen to bad people? Because we should all be roasting in hell now, and we should be there for eternity. Fact. Okay, I'm glad everybody got that. But, beloved, this question does apply to one person. It does apply to one person. There's one person that this applies to. Perfectly. And his name is Jesus. He's the good person. Why do bad things happen to a good person is how the question should be formed. The good person. He's the one and only good person who's ever walked this planet. And he was crucified. Well, we could say he was good, but everyone else was bad, so he was murdered by the wicked choices of people of his day. Okay? We could say that. He was good, but everyone else was bad, so he was murdered by the wicked choices of his people of that day. And you know what? We'd be right. What? We'd be right. But we wouldn't be complete. We'd be right, but we wouldn't be complete. Do you understand? How do I know why do bad things happen to the good person? Answer, because you nailed him to a cross. That's what it says, right? But it doesn't start with that. The reason why it doesn't start with that is because God wants to make it very clear through Peter that ultimately God did not lose control of these wicked people. God was still in control of them. So, the answer ultimately to this question is, is why do bad things happen to good people? The answer is ultimately because God decided it. God decided for a bad thing to happen to a good person. God is God. <laughs> now, some of us in here might not like that answer, but ladies and gentlemen, you're going to like it in just a second. Because see, what God does, he does it perfectly, and he knows what's best. And he has bad things happen to even redeemed, changing into good people today, because he knows what's going to happen at the end. And he knows what's best, and what's best for his glory. The wildest thing about this whole thing is that God's glorified the most at this point, too, in history. It is the pinnacle of the glory of God on display. At the moment when God is shown to be sovereign over an evil act happening to his own son. I know this is hard. Y'all getting this? Some of y'all are, hmm, this is big. 
Got to think on this one. You're going to go home and chew on this a little bit. Here we go. You ready? God ordained the death of his son. How many of you would ordain that for your children? Anybody here say, oh, okay, well, I have my child. Oh, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to determine that they're going to die. This is literally what this passage says. Jesus delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. The word predetermined here in the, is from the Greek word horizo, or orizo, rather. Orizo. This is where we get our English word, what? Horizon. Horizon. You know, predetermined? Horizon. It's where we get our English word horizon. If you look at the horizon, what's the horizon? It's that line of demarcation between the sky and the, and, the, uh, and the ocean in this place. It's that line, you know, that permanent, that line. What he's saying here is God has determined or made that line. He plumbed it. He said, this is it. This is what's going to happen. He fixed it. He determined it. He said it. He appointed it. He appointed his death. God determined Christ's death. That's, that's shocking, isn't it? He set the plan before the foundations of the world. He ordained His Son to die. This was God's established plan to have the Son delivered over to death on a cross. So again, what we have here, a bad thing happening to the good person. And ultimately, we see God is behind it. Why? Why? The answer is, God was bringing something good out of a bad situation. Very much like we read in our Old Testament passage, where Joseph's brothers meant it for bad. God meant it for good. God was accomplishing something great through the determined, predetermined death of His Son. What was it? It was saving a people for Himself. It was showing that He is both just and the justifier. That is, that God does not let Sin, go. Let me show you. I'm going to kill my son and show you. And God provides a way for mankind to be made right with God through the death of His Son. He's just and the justifier. Oh, folks, do you see the glory of God on display in just this little word, these phrases? God approached man. And by the way, the word foreknowledge here is a very misunderstood word. Often people want to just make it that God was aware that it was going to happen and try to take the responsibility away from God. But beloved, this still doesn't solve the tension because if God intellectually knew that people were going to kill his son, why didn't he stop it? Doesn't answer the question, does it? Does it make it go away if you just make it about what he knows intellectually? No, it doesn't. But the word foreknowledge literally means that he's intimately aware 
and knows exactly what will happen and has determined what will happen in his foreknowledge. He knew it because he ordained it. God is intimately involved in every single decision a man makes before he makes it. Now, I know that's going to shock everybody in the room. You're thinking, wow, if I really meditate on that, that means everything. One of our brothers posted something about God ordaining his sin, and it was shocking to several people. God does ordain our sin. I know you're like, what? Well, listen, if he ordained the greatest sin act ever accomplished, don't you think nothing else goes by his notice? Is there any greater act of sin than the cross? You tell me. No, there's none. Not even close. So God is sovereign over every evil act, even the worst evil act ever perpetrated. We may know, we may not know how God is working all things together for good, At the moment that it's happening, I guarantee you the disciples didn't know how. A lot of them were like, what? This doesn't make sense. But he was working everything together for his good. It's a fact. The proof is that the greatest evil ever done to the most innocent person ever to live was God's plan. This is it, that it happened. And it accomplished the great glory that's mentioned by Peter in the passage. That is, the Holy Spirit can now come. That's a good, right? That comes out of evil. Do you understand how important this is to your health and well-being, beloved? Oh, so many of us, so many of us in this room, and I, it, it gets swept under the rug, I know, and some people are afraid sometimes to say anything to your brothers and sisters, but do you understand what worry is? I'm going to nail it down here. Do you understand what worry is? Do you know what anxiety is? Do you know what it is? What is it? It's not trusting in the Lord. It's not trusting in Him. It's not aware of his sovereignty over all events, including evil. That's what it is. When you worry, you're basically saying God's not in control. It's up to me. Ladies and gentlemen, God was not wringing his hands when he watched his son die. And that was the greatest tragedy ever performed. He is not wringing his hands in your life either. He knows exactly where you are, exactly what you're going through, and he is to be trusted. He is faithful. He is kind. And he is working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We must trust God always, right? This includes while experiencing every single sin that is perpetrated against us. And this does not mean that there is never a time for accountability. Listen closely. Which brings us to the next point. Y'all having fun yet? I know it's hard. I know it's deep. Stretch. If you need to raise your hands, it's okay. There is a place for accountability. I'm sorry. (laughs) 
There is a place for accountability. Look, look. Even though God is sovereign, there's still accountability. Human responsibility is still there. By the way, that's what I was doing when I was calling you to turn from anxiety. Turn from that sin. Trust in Christ. I was holding you accountable. Did you get that? Same thing Peter does here. You nailed to a cross! And by the way, you nailed to a cross when you worried. Ooh, that'll, that'll strike deep, won't it? Well, let's name it what it is. When you worry, you are what? When you're not trusting in God, you are what? Sinning. And if you're sinning, you are what? That is the thing Jesus had to die for. He had to die for that sin. Woo! There's some accountability for you. Is there a place for holding a person accountable? Absolutely. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. First, Peter had told him, you yourselves knew the miracles and signs Jesus did, right? Now he says, you nailed that one that you knew was a miracle worker to the cross. You did it. Wow. This is most likely saying they were the motivating influence in the Romans carrying out Jesus' death. Remember, it was the crowds who cried, crucify. Even the godless Pilate wanted to free Jesus. But the Jewish leaders and the crowd said, crucify him. Peter's holding them accountable. Peter gave them no way out. He held them responsible for the rejection of the Messiah, yet at the same time stated it was part of God's plan. He left the tension where it was. God is sovereign, man is responsible. Leave it there. That's what he said. So what we see here is there's a place for holding people accountable for their sin. You don't just brush it off say, well, God ordained it. Oh, well. No, don't blame God for your sin. No, no, no. You sinned. You own it. This is what Peter's saying. See, not every single person, and this is very interesting to me. Peter was, in effect, in effect, holding people accountable for their sin of commission and omission. Now, what do you mean by that? That is, ones that were directly involved and those that sat by and didn't say anything. He said, you nailed them to a cross, and he's talking to a big crowd of people. Do you think every single one of them said, crucify him? I don't think he directed every single one of them there. I think there were other people there from the area. Some were guilty directly for saying, kill Jesus. But Peter holds them all accountable. Because he had shown by miracles that he was here. They should have all done what? Worshipped him. They knew he was there. We too, ladies and gentlemen, can be guilty of sitting silently by and allowing and giving approval by not standing up boldly for the truth. Listen to me closely. We are guilty of these kinds of sins also. All of us in the room. In fact, every time we sin, we are standing up and we are saying, in effect, the death of Jesus must have happened. 
We all know full well sin has consequences, don't we? What is the consequence of every one of your sins? Death. Wrath. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. What does that mean? Every sin, no matter how small or how large, has to be judged. I'm not going with purgatory. Are you? I'm going with Jesus. He's the one that did it. So own it. Even after you're a believer. Those sins were part of what he died for. Do you understand? We also must be aware that Jesus' death is what kept us from eternal hell, right? This is what Peter's doing here. He's holding these people accountable. And I want to challenge all of you. I think, I'm completely convinced, we have missed it a little bit. When we, I, I've been thinking on this more and more and more and more. We think that the law is the way to get people to see that their sin is bad. Okay? I don't think so. I think the law is only the beginning. The cross is the real place. You want to know how bad your sin is? Look at what it costs the Son of God. Then you know how bad the sin is. Do you understand? This is why the gospel is for the believer now just as much as when we first got saved. Because the moment that I sin, I've forgotten what it cost the Son of God for me. Do you get this? Oh, Lord, show me the depth of the depravity of my sin. Look at the cross. For it's there you see how God takes sin seriously. I'm going to go over. Y'all hang in there. Fifth, Jesus was graciously raised from the dead. We'll get, this is the good news, isn't it? <laughs> Glorious news. Good news. Getting a little bit charismatic here. I'm sorry. <laughs> it is so good. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Mm. Here we see God showed Jesus was victorious over sin and death. God raised Jesus from the dead. This is so interesting putting an end to the agony of death. What Jesus accomplished satisfied the Father's wrath, and therefore the God the Father did not leave the Son dead. But when God the Father raised Jesus, the effect was He put an end to the agony of death for everyone who believes. This is a glorious word. This, this little phrase here is unbelievable. <laughs> putting an end to the agony of death. See, you say, well, it's talking about Jesus. Yes, it is talking about Jesus. But all who believe in Jesus have the effect of it. We're no longer going to have the agony of death. Oh, death, where's your sting? It's gone. 
Why? Because of Christ crucified, resurrected, and reigning, we don't have to die and be separated from God forever. Praise the King, right? If this won't make you obey, nothing will. If this won't make you love your wife as Christ loved the church, then you've just missed it. You need a head checkup, a heart checkup. If you're not ready to lay down your life for your wife, men, after hearing this, you've missed it. You're gone. I'm sorry. Go back. Start over. Begin at the first of this verse and think about it again. There is no more death for us. There is no more power of sin. We've died with him. We're alive with him. Christ is risen, and we are too. We're alive. Read Romans 6. Peter is saying, in effect, Jesus came and did what was necessary. You, however, men, he's talking to the crowd, you're guilty. God is good. You are deserving judgment. Christ can't be held by death's power anymore, but you deserve to die. That's what he's saying to all of them. You deserve judgment. There is a very important lesson here for us in, in our gospel message. The glory of Jesus is also the primary source of our confrontation. Like I said, get this. Every time you sin, it was part of the reason why Jesus had to die. You got to get that. Jesus' death shows the height of our guilt before God and crushes us, doesn't it? In effect, you killed Jesus. We are as guilty as anybody that was in that crowd that day. Do you understand? Who killed Jesus? I did. Who killed Jesus? God did. Why? To pay for my sin. To be just. Roman Catholics say Jesus gets us started on the road to righteousness. Then our responsibility is to be holy enough to get to heaven. Oh, they're known for leaving a Jesus up on the cross. Ladies and gentlemen, they never got him to the cross. We are required to burn off the sins in purgatory. Beloved, this makes us atone for our sins. And beloved, this is impossible because none of us are worthy to be raised from the dead. That's what it says. Since it's impossible for him to be held by his power. Why was it impossible? Because he's the holy lamb of God, perfect one. He did not deserve to be killed. And the God-man raised himself from the dead. You take my life and I will raise it up again, is what he said. There is only one who is worthy of a resurrection. Do you understand that? There is only one who had the power to rise from the dead. There is only one who defeated death. 
there is only one sacrifice for sin, and there is only one hope in this world. And beloved, it was our sin that killed him, and it is Jesus who did it that we did. We couldn't do. He did what we couldn't do. Once again, we're brought to the place of the crowd. Let me ask you a question. Are you at the place of the crowd yet? Have you been reminded of any of the sin that you did this week? Has it kind of popped in your head maybe? Maybe some of you are here and you've heard this message, but you've said, you know what, I've heard this a long time, but I've tried to clean myself all my life and I can't do it. I need a Savior. Okay, here's what you would call an evangelistic call from the pulpit. Repent and believe. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. He is your hope. Call upon the name of the Lord, for He is worthy, and He did what you can't do. Are you where the people are? We're not even all the way through the sermon. I hope you're already getting there. I'd imagine that at least some of the people in the crowd were already at this place. They were probably already saying in their hearts to Peter and to God, What shall we do? What shall we do? We killed the Messiah. What shall we do? Are you there? Peter says, Repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent. It's not a one-time deal, is it, folks? It's a lifetime of repentance. All of us who believe are doing it all the time, aren't we? Until we're done with these bodies of death that we carry around. Listen to me, it might come off sometimes when I say, if you worry, it's sin. You might think, well, Pastor Mike never worries. Pastor Mike never sins. He's sure being judgmental. Garbage. I'm a human. I'm no different than you. You think when I got to this point in the message, I went, man, I did it. Oh, I'm so good. No. When I hit this point in the message, I was like, man, what in the world, Lord? I got to stand up here and say this? I got to peel myself up off the floor first. I was responsible for your son's death. Have mercy on me, God. I... I did it. But I trust you. You died for me. And so God, I can't wait to tell these people about your glory. Let's pray. Father, you are good and kind. All that you have done is far beyond our comprehension. We are sinners in need of a Savior. And you provided it. God, we praise you. We thank you.
that you have delivered us from the domain of darkness, transformed us into children of light. Oh God, you are good and kind and loving and holy and just and gracious. Father, we worship you now. We pray, Lord, I pray now that your Spirit will convict hearts and show people their need of this Savior and that you have provided. Lord, help us to all examine our hearts now and turn to you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.